welcome to the 20th episode of the Sports Map Podcast. This is the podcast that we're talking all things sports medicine, physiotherapy, rehabilitation, and return to performance. My name's Nick Kane, and today we'll be chatting to a physiotherapist who specializes in foot and ankle, working for the Foot and Ankle Rehabilitation Australia in Stuyama. And he'll be talking to the more subtle uh, medial and rear foot instability of an ankle, as well as touching on some components around syndesmosis management. Now, our guest today in Stu Weimer, uh, Stu has a postgraduate diploma in musculoskeletal physiotherapy, and he has a long working association with foot and ankle orthopedic surgeons. Uh, he's a wealth of experience in post-surgical rehabilitation of foot and ankle disorders, uh, and he's recognised as one of the lead, leading physiotherapists in Australia in this space. He's also the clinical director for the Foot and Ankle Rehabilitation Australia. Uh, he's recently um, completed a fantastic masterclass for us on Liz Frank injury management, diagnosis and rehabilitation, um, very comprehensive approach to how we manage those difficult presentations. Uh, he's also spoken recently at our football injury conference uh, on syndesmosis injuries and, and previously at a foot and ankle course around our topic that we're speaking to today being subtle um, medial and rear foot instability. Now, for those who have not been across to our website in recent times at sportsmap.com.au, we'd recommend you do so. Uh, You'll notice a raft of changes there, including our brand new masterclass platform, uh, which is a subscription-based platform that allows you full access to our range of content of expertly filmed masterclass videos featuring the likes of Craig Purdom, Jill Cook, Ebony Rio, Dean Benton, our guest today in Stu Eimer, uh, more coming by the likes of Peter Maliaris and many others. Uh, Those masterclasses are curated to really give you clinical takeaways. Um, It shows full demonstration of practical exercises, things you can implement within your practice from day one. Um, All content is readily available uh, once you do sign up and more content is just coming regularly after that to make sure all your CPD requirements are covered for the year um, at SportsMap. Now, as well as our masterclass platform, we do have a few courses coming up. Uh, Now, that's the Upper Limb Rehabilitation in Sport, which is on the Gold Coast at the end of October, and then the Athletic Groin Pain Symposium, which is early in November, and that's in Sydney. Now, by the time this podcast goes to air, they may be sold out. There's very limited tickets left. However, you can get and gain virtual access. So, again, have a look on the website for further details on that. And finally, for me, uh, there is still virtual access available to our recent football injury sports conference for a very limited time. Only full details at the website and keep an eye out and an ear out for our future courses soon to be announced for early in 2023, uh, coming in February and early March to Melbourne and Sydney. Uh, A couple of very big names that we are tight-lipped on at the moment, uh, but you'll hear all that information coming very soon. 100 that's enough for me for now. Let's jump into our chat with Stu. Welcome, Stu. Thanks very much, Nick. Good to be here. Mate, fantastic to have you. And um, to kick us off, why don't you tell us, tell our listeners a little bit about um, both yourself, what you've been doing professionally, uh, about your clinics, foot and ankle rehabilitation, and where you're operating at the moment. Yeah, thanks very much. Well, I've had a, a big change this year. I uh, moved down to Hobart to open the Foot and Ankle Rehab Australia Tasmania branch, uh, and I'm working with one of the main surgeons down in Hobart, uh, one of the foot and ankle subspecialty trained surgeons. And that's pretty much what I've been doing for the last 20 plus years, uh, working in surgeon practices and getting exposure to 100% foot and ankle caseload. Uh, along with that, uh, doing some work in um, the Melbourne-based clinics before we got here uh, and their standalone sites, uh, which we run um, as our own. One of the main limitations when you're cohabiting with a surgeon is you're working out of a space that's geared for a surgeon, not for a physio and a rehab team. So we need access to, to that in our other clinic locations as well. Beautiful. And where did you develop your interest in foot and ankle and why have you gone down that pathway? Uh, it was a pretty conscious decision um, and it was certainly uh, in the late 1990s. I'd been um, a grad for probably about uh, 12, 13 years and starting to get sore thumbs jumping on backs all day and necks and I didn't see that was my long-term future and um, there was actually a bit of literature about physios wearing out their CMC joints and the like and uh, I, I figured I needed to change plus it just didn't float my boat so much. I also looked at where the gaps were in our industry at the time and there were a 
a handful of good knee physios I could send my difficult cases to and the, the well-recognised spine and shoulder physios, but nobody had owned this space. And I think a bit of that was due to perhaps 20 years before I got into the profession, a lot of that heading into the podiatric space. So there wasn't really a physio that, that was owning that space. In addition to that, I was treating a lot of lower limb athletes. I uh, had a, a team role with the Australian cross-country ski team and um, managing those athletes that they have a large number of overuse running-based injuries for a, a winter sport where we have a very short season in Oz. They have to run a lot and, um, yeah, I was treating lots of those types of injuries. And I've just got a biomechanical sort of brain and a process brain. So that sort of stuff really drew my attention and it's kept me really interested in this latest phase, which has now been going for 22 years. I'm not sure I can call it a phase anymore. Uh, It's a true profession. Now, Stu, we were lucky enough to have you on board to um, do a tremendous uh, masterclass uh, video for our new platform on Liz Frank injuries and rehabilitation. Uh, And that is soon to be up and available for all access. Um, it was obviously a really comprehensive take from you know uh, acute management and initial management around surgical um, interventions to all the way through to end stage rehab and return to sport. Um, but today we are going to be talking about something a little bit differently, uh, and that's an area you feel that I guess uh, uh, goes a little bit missed and and un- unsung, I guess, for want of a better word, around medial ankle and rear foot instability. Um, to kick us off, I guess, what is that and what am I, what am I referring to there? Yeah, great question, Nick. Um, there's, there's been a game-changing uh, article from a Swiss orthopedic foot and ankle surgeon, um, Bayat Hinterman. Uh, it's spelled B-E-A-T, but they pronounce it Bayat. Uh, and Hinterman's been banging on about this with some previous studies from the early 2000s. Uh, but last year's um, paper was a bit of a game changer. It's, it's biomechanics of medial ankle and peritalar instability. Um, and uh, it, it references what we see in the physio presentation of the subtle versions of um, medial ankle rear foot instability. And yes, it's a, a, a often missed injury um, presentation because it can happen in concert with lateral ligament injury as well. So the, the often seen lateral ligament sprain can actually also have some silent medial instability and that those injuries only often present and declare themselves as both sides in sort of late stage of recovery and by that stage you may not have had best practice management implemented so getting good at um diagnosing these in the early stages is is important for long-term outcomes so you touched on the i guess mechanism there of injury around the medial aspect like you know what causes this are they just big inversion injuries where they're jamming up the medial aspect or is it due to sort of um further further mechanism of of injury that sort of caused that uh and then how are we picking that up early yeah it's it's a, a very interesting one to ponder on MOI. I think what we see here is is um, there's been some postulation in the past about, you know, oh, I had an inversion, eversion sprain. And, um, you know, as biomechanically minded individuals, you probably need a really weird um, confluence of strange force application in, in not very common circumstances to have both an inversion, eversion mechanism. So it's usually either one or other. And what I was taught when I was at uni was that when we have a lateral instability, structures get damaged on the medial side due to compression. And that's pretty much the majority of subtle and, um, and even more extensive lateral injuries can get some medial compression. However, not all symptoms on the medial side are due to compressive forces. Sometimes we'll see mechanisms of injury that include rotation more than they include inversion, and it can be internal or external. That can get combined medial and lateral injury. What we see is a very small percent of patients just getting medial deltoid injury. It's about 4% of all ankle sprain injuries, and that's from Riband's work in 2013. And the silent presenting patient that's got lateral instability, we see in the clinic a lot of the time that also has concurrent medial instability, and they've failed to achieve milestones. So we get them as secondary and tertiary referrals coming through because they haven't progressed as a lateral sprain should do. I'll just touch on a little bit around your that 4% that is purely a medial deltoid ligament injury. What's the process there? And this is a bit of a sidestep from our subtle instability that we're talking about. Um, one, two, you know, pick up the level of injury that is, so whether imaging is, is needed and and how do they go non-operatively and do we need to seek further opinions? Uh, 
Yeah, there's a, there's a bit in that question, Nick. Um, yeah, look, breaking it down into those pieces, uh, patients will be managed non-operatively if the instability is at a, a, a um, very subtle level. The, the presentation that um, I did with you guys at the football symposium last year was, was titled Subtle Medial Ankle Rear Foot Instability, and it's specifically um, titled that because the not subtle injury presents to the emergency department. You know, they've got a dislocated rear foot, the shin's facing in the direction that should and the foot's not pointing where it should be. And, and pretty much the junior registrar at NEED picks up that think something's relatively amiss here and um, appropriate imaging's organised and then referral up, upstream. So they don't present to the physio clinic as the primary presentation or the podiatry clinic. What does is the more subtle version of those injuries. So firstly, it's important we just establish that we're talking about those subtle injuries now. Um, however, the subtle injury can have not very subtle functional sequelae if we don't get them managed from the get-go. Um, I think that was part one. What were part two and three of those questions again? Yeah, no, you've clarified that. I guess when we are talking around, um, and we'll get back to the subtle, but if if it is a purely medial ligament injury, uh, they've moved past You know whether they've gone to an emergency department um, what are we just in, in the initial phases? What's the best management for them? So uh, these patients will come in with a presentation that something's amiss compared to just a lateral ligament injury. And if we are talking about a combined lateral and medial patient, they're, they're the ones that are probably going to be the more difficult to pick up because the subtle um, instability from a just pure eversion injury, they're not very common. Um, and the patient's going to indicate where the symptoms are and they're not going to be talking about lateral pain and they won't have lateral ecchymosis and swelling. So they'll be relatively easy to pick up as just an isolated medial injury and they should be easier then to manage accordingly. What, what does pass through to the keeper a little bit more readily is those combined lateral and medial instability patients. Um, and the concern then would be, you know, a patient that just seems out of the ordinary to a lateral sprain. They've got symptoms medially and they're substantial. They're swollen over that area. They may well have a non-weight-bearing phase and an inability to weight bear that lasts well beyond what we'd expect for even a severe lateral sprain. Even your severe lateral sprain should be able to weight bear within a week at some point. But these patients will still be painful and unable to weight bear as long as, you know, a week or two later. So essentially... The, the novice practitioner in that space just got to recognise when they think something's up, then it probably is and they need to investigate and look a little bit further. Yeah, and how would you go about that in that further investigation? Yeah, that's a really good question, particularly on the acute presentation. So if a player's just come off the field, um, you know, they'll have an inability to weight bear if they've got combined injuries unless it's absolutely the most subtle version of these subtle injuries. So they'll have an inability to weight bear and we probably don't really want to stress those structures any further in the first few weeks by putting them through a battery of lots of stability testing. However, the subacute patient and the patient that comes in on secondary and tertiary referral that's chronic, that's the first thing we go to. We go to our clinical testing of those ligament tests. And just like we can break down lateral ligament into the three bands, ATFL, CFL and PTFL, and various tests for at least the first two of those, which are the commonly injured lateral structures. We can do exactly the same for the anterior fibres of the deltoid ligament, and we can do the same for the vertical um, middle fibres of the deltoid ligament. So that's a, um, a, a medial biased anterior draw test, and then an eversion type stress test. Um, and, and you can get quite good at discerning the instabilities when you make side-to-side -side comparison. In addition to that, I always tell my staff that you're going to be much better at feeling for that than in any imaging can show us when the patient's six weeks or more down the track because they may well have a stretched ligament that's healed. So structurally it looks okay. They might indicate there's some scar tissue around it, but we want to know what's the function of that structure. Can it hold under load? And if it's twice as long as it should be, it's lost all of its capacity to resist those static and dynamic 
um, the Umenta stabilising forces. You mentioned earlier around the sequelae of these not being managed well enough early. What is that? What is that sequelae and what's it look like? Yeah, it becomes a big deal. So if these get missed and, um, you know, we'll see patients um, sometimes that come into the clinic where, you know, you think it would have been great to have seen you 15 years ago when you did this injury because uh, they can progress onto full plano valgus deformity of the rear foot. Now, anybody that's seen a tibialis posterior patient diagnosis, that's grade 2B or 3 or grade 4. So what we'd otherwise refer to as acquired adult flat foot deformity, that's the deformity that these patients with medial instability can progress onto if they're managed poorly. And when they get to that point, um, there was a good paper by uh, DeLand in 2006 in Foot and Ankle International, and they looked at the cascade of those structures on the medial plantar surface of the foot and ankle and looked at what gives in what sequence. This is particularly looked at with tib post dysfunction. And, um, yeah, there's a, a cascading of, of event where one of the structures is injured and then it just keeps going until we get uh, sometimes uh, full um, grade four and that um, classification system is where we've got ankle valgus as well so the ankle's tilted in the mortis now those patients have got an osteoarthritic ankle you know pretty much being made worse every day if they continue walking around like, like that so the sequelae are substantial and they require at that point very substantial rear foot um, reconstructive surgery tibialis posterior tendon graft um, transfer uh, they'll often require um, sometimes some fusions through rear foot joints as well. And as soon as we get a patient that's into that level of orthopedic management, they're not a return to dynamic propulsive sport. They certainly can't manage directional change sport either. So we, we want to get them, we want to get them early and pick them up before they progress down the track because these patients improve and they'll improve despite being missed, but they'll top out at maybe 60% and, and they're okay, but they're not good and they're certainly not performance athlete level good so we talked a little bit about how to try and pick them up around both the mechanism and when a sort of normal lateral ankle sprain is not progressing how you would with some of their pain and, and troublesome with weight bearing um what's where does the management differ so what do we start to do when we're sort of picking a few of these things up within the first few weeks yeah, so when they're in the acute phase, uh, we need to have them in protected weight-bearing phase. So the the concerns and the, I guess, the um, elucidation that Hinterman brought to this um, discussion only in this paper last year is that it's medial ankle and rear foot and it's peritalar instability that develops. That's basically what I was talking about before. So the talus becomes unstable in the... Um, acetabular pedis which is you know those structures that support under the talus as soon as the talus drops then the medial longitudinal arch of the foot drops so we look for that and if they are capable of weight bearing um you know 50 percent and we can see change of medial longitudinal arch height and normally when we're visualizing that in the clinic we're really just looking at the vicular height so there's a whole complex of things in the foot postural index we can look at but probably the simplest one to look at is navicular height on just um uh, visual observation and if we see that the navicular is, is lower than it is on the uninjured side then you'd have to suspect that there's something that's not holding in that individual as well as it should be and if they're um, only say a couple of weeks post injury and they're tentative weight bearing on it then there's still a healing biologic process phase that we can have those patients improve if we manage them appropriately if we let them walk around on that and they um, flatten out through that arch even further, then they'll potentially progress onto that mechanical cascade we are talking about before. So by protected weight bearing, you mean in a cam boot, I presume? And if so, how long are we talking? Or are you going purely yes. off looking at that navicular height? Yeah, definitely in a cam walker boot for these patients. Um, we're, we're trying to immobilize their ankle structures. We're trying to immobilize as many as those um, foot structures we were talking about. However, um, we recognize that cam walkers are not bad at impairing and controlling sagittal plane, but they're not so great at coronal and transverse plane limitations. So we'll normally put a rear foot inverting orthotic, just an over-the-counter device, inside the boot. So it goes inside the liner against either a compression stocking or a sock against the foot. Um, and and that, that's up to six weeks for your more substantial patient. 
for somebody that's borderline would be doing it for four weeks. I think the cost and the impact of Cam Walker immobilization, unless it's a you know, player at elite level in a club where you guys have access to them all the time, you can use them for a short stint like a week or two. But by the time you've fitted somebody into that level of immobilization, if you're going to do it for these injuries, it probably deserves at least four weeks. You're reviewing that as it comes out and you, uh, you're rehabbing it step-by-step uh, step through a standard sort of practice or are you doing some things slightly differently around some of that, um, whether it's education and, and strength work? as opposed to a normal ankle injury, I presume? The, um, the difficult part is achieving buy-in from the patient because our lateral instabilities are relatively well-tolerated and patients that don't get full um, restitution of resting ligament length after a lateral injury can cope with that lateral instability at various degrees. The foot's very poor at coping with medial instability. And those structures resist weight-bearing force, even just in static standing, let alone in dynamic tasks. So patients don't make the distinction too much. It's up to us to educate them. This is a bigger deal when it's on the medial side and you're not going to be dealing with the usual timeframes of, you know, a couple of weeks up to four weeks for your more severe lateral injuries. You're going to be a lot longer than that. And some of these, if they're managed appropriately, for six weeks in a cam walker are probably going to be six weeks until they're back to another six weeks, that is. So 13 um, weeks or three months until they're back to recreational level athletic activity. The elite patient will be back sooner than that, um, but that's because they've got access to services that the recreational weekend athlete doesn't have. All right, Stu, so they've been in the boot for that four to six week period. Um, where does our management here from a physio standpoint differ to just your standard lateral ankle injury? Um, and where are some of the sticking points that we might find? Is it is it more their ability to sort of push up and push off, you know, over their first ray, or is it more some of their change of, change of direction work? It's, it's both of those things, Nick. So uh, the sagittal plane um, uh, movements will be uh, – uh, firstly, an, an interesting conundrum because pretty much all of our ankle sprain patients, they, they usually lack dorsiflexion in the early stages. And a lot of patients with either medial or lateral sprains end up with some form of anterior impingement. So we, we kind of need to try to restore dorsiflexion first because if we've got a, a stiff ankle, then it's more likely to want to pronate through compensatory strategies in the first place. That's before we consider whether there's any medial instability and greater capacity for it to pronate. So we don't want, firstly, a greater driver to pronation, secondly, a greater um, capacity to pro excess pronation um, coexisting. So firstly, trying to restore that sagittal plane motion, which, you know, like it's easy for me to say, it's actually quite difficult to do, but, but maxing that movement as you can. And at the same time, controlling for and watching what's happening through the, um, that metal longitudinal arch um, height and support and not ending in a situation where we've got uh, um, you know increasing flattening of, of that arch structure so that'll be low and high die taping where it's appropriate when we're transitioning out of the boot it'll be um, an ASO brace for the first transition type um, process where we reef it tightly on the medial side and and that can make a substantial difference for day-to-day -day stuff and then they'll probably play out the rest of that season when they've made you know, good stage recovery um, with some form of combination of orthotic or um, low and high die taping or sports ankle brace, variations of those those components. So I think that's the yeah, that's the components that we'd be looking for specifically. In terms of where do they, they break down, they break down when they get onto forefoot loads and propulsive, you know, hallux and, and first race sort of push-off tasks. And they also break down when they get to contralateral cutting drills so if it's a right ankle media side when they're cutting left they're pushing off it's creating that valgus force at the rear foot that's where that instabilities will dominate and these patients really appreciate being taped into you know that low die style taping they really appreciate that holding because it's supporting for that peritalar component which is so often present in the ankle rear foot um, stuff. And that's why we have to consider that as ankle and rear foot, it's not just an ankle injury. 
Yep, and when you commented around the dorsiflexion, how it's sort of easy to say and and, and hard, I guess, to explain. What are you what are you getting out there around um, your methods to achieve this dorsiflexion? Is that through just uh, a range of manual therapy approaches, or are you doing something different? Yeah, there's there's a range of manual therapy techniques. We use some um, uh, uh, surgical traction belts in the practice for those stiff patients that are in the um, the mid and later stages of their instability injury or if there just happened to be a you know post-fracture fibrosis patient for instance um you know that's stiff in dorsiflexion so we're using lots of of uh, uh glide mobilizing techniques with applying those glide forces through through the traction strap using some novel um applications and, and we pretty much you know teach those practitioners that come along to the workshops how to how to apply those types of forces um, and then just making sure that we're getting that, um, that weight-bearing dynamic um, stuff as well. So for the really aggressively stiff ankle, we'll often get them in end position weight-bearing lunge and then look at anterior tibial glide as opposed to in the non-weight-bearing position, we're looking at a posterior talar glide. Uh, and we're just, just assisting patients in that weight-bearing position as well. And one of the other things I should mention when we're talking, you know, damage on the medial side of the ankle rear foot is, you know, a, a not uncommon um, sequelae from lots of uh, injuries where we'll get uh, posteromedial scarring and, and that'll commonly affect the FHL because it runs through its own osseous tunnel as an intra-articular tendon at the back and underneath of the ankle before it comes out of the ankle capsule. And that's quite vulnerable to scarring in that position. So being able to assess for that and see whether FHL is contributing to a lack of dorsiflexion in any of our ankle trauma patients is an is important skill. So we teach our, our physios how to um, stand with the, the foot on a um, pocket physio wedge, one of those massage tools that lots of practices um, have. And that dorsiflexes the first raid to 45 degrees at the first MTP joint. And then we apply their lunge test position. And if we see a difference between lunge in the FHL bias position versus the flat toe bias position, then we know that there's a component of FHL restricting their, their movement. And we attend to that with soft tissue therapy through that area and mobilizing through dorsiflex first ray position as well as ankle dorsiflex position. So, yeah, we've got to try and find out where that, that lack is and then direct our attention to that specific case. Okay, so that's an interesting one. So yeah, it's the it's the dorsiflexion lunge test, just a, a needle wall, but you're doing that with a with something that sort of dorsiflexes the first ray and reassessing that. And is is it is any difference relevance? Is it is it a couple of centimeters that sort of um, makes you think there's something there, or just any difference left to left, or any difference from you know first ray dorsiflexes versus not at all? You're addressing it. Yeah, there's, there's um, a propensity in most physio clinics where the, um, the tape stuck to the floor near the door um, to measure this in a, um, a linear measurement. So if we just translate that, um, you know, that's the, the piece of 38 mil tape that's got centimetres marked out on, um, uh, on the floor that, you know, lots of physio clinics have. Um, and in, in the needle wall lunge test position, patients that lose four or six centimetres of um of their precious lunge movement in an ankle that's injured and stiff, they're, they're pretty darn tight and they have an FHL dominant restriction if they lose four to six centimetres of that lunge manoeuvre when we dorsiflex the first MTP joint to 45 degrees. So that's not maximum dorsiflexion of the toe, of course. And when we transition it at um, heel off, um, where the ankle's coming just out of maximal dorsiflexion position, the first raised dorsiflexion at the first MTP joint. So it's quite relevant to toe off. And so many patients have a component of that that we want to make sure we can uh, attend to that as best we can. And I'll just go back to my comment from before because, you know, it's once again easy to say this stuff, but restoring stiff ankles into dorsiflexion, sometimes half of my working week is spent working on ankles trying to recruit extra dorsiflexion. So... We have a saying in the clinic that dorsiflexion is king. Lovely. Now, you've sort of answered my next question maybe with talking to that FHL bias, but uh, when we talked about they're lacking their propulsion over that first ray, and that can be, I guess, a troubleshooting part throughout the rehabilitation, um, I'm assuming that would address a component of that. And, and what sort of 
uh, strength demands are you looking to really need to, I guess, help us sort of skip over that hurdle so they don't get stuck with that? Is it like a, I'm sure you've got some calf and endurance um, markers there, but is it does it come down to strength components there? Or is it more of a, a sort of arch recruitment and an arch strength um, component to it? Yeah, it's a good question, Nick. Um, when we're referencing this back to, say, our medial ankle rear foot instability patient, um, we, we've got those, I suppose, our our structural static concerns first and foremost. So, you know, we all know that um, you know, structure denotes function and if we've got deficient structure, then we've, we're going to have deficient function. So if we've got an unstable ankle rear foot on the medial side and we might have some stiffness into dorsiflexion, it's going to want to pronate more, it's going to pronate more. And let's say there's some FHL component in the mix as well that's um, um, contributing to the dorsiflexion loss, then that's a quite a complicated series of deficiencies. So, yeah, we'll, we'll need to look at obviously restoring calf raise in various positions of um, first MTP dorsiflexion if they're an FHL bias um, restricted patient. Otherwise, if they're not, then we're just looking at a range of you know, different um, ankle dorsiflexion positions. And some of these patients might have concurrent first MTP joint um, hallux limitus, for instance. So you know, that's a, a whole nother, um, whole nother point for discussion. But we'll often have to take those things into account. And in many of those patients, we'll look at their calf work from a, a drop heel position up to a limited lift position, so that they're not having to stress the first MTP joint excessively. Um, in addition to that, we see plenty of patients, various pathologies where they haven't loaded the forefoot for a long period of time and anybody in a cam walker for six weeks hasn't done so because the boot rocks through the forefoot for them. They can develop a range of knock-on symptoms. It might not be first ray. It might be plantar plates of the, the lesser rays. They might get some neuroma-type stuff happening in the, um, the lesser rays as well. So just got to be on the lookout for that and just then modify those exercise progressions accordingly. And we can still build strength in a patient that we can't ask to push to maximum height calf raise. That's an important component. Perfect. And you mentioned just there about the rocker in a boot. And this is a bit of a question that we hadn't planned to sort of go through. But a lot of the footwear lately has these rockers in it. Is there scope there to have patients come out of boots earlier um, and use these type of rocker shoes out there? Do you advocate using these type of rocker shoes at all, whether maybe it is still the full-time in the boot, but as that transition period, are they beneficial for, I guess, these clients that may be lacking in the dorsiflexion early and, and you're sort of still wanting to protect, um, I guess, that medial aspect? Yeah, it, it's going to depend on the proprietary brand of rocker-style shoes. So the, the most common one, the Hoka One, um, and the most aggressive rockers in those are the Bondi and the Clifton models. They, they have a four-foot rocker primarily, and they have a, a huge stack of... Um, soft foam under the heel and if we think about that do we really want to put somebody with either lateral or medial or combined instability onto some soft foam under their rear foot um, when they're struggling firstly to to navigate keeping a stable foot in contact with the ground let alone in a shod situation so no we don't typically with those um, because they're the most commonly available ones Um, some of the orthotist stocks and rocker shoes that are proprietary brand that have some more mid and rear foot rocker but but they're often out of the price range and and usually out of the uh the fashion stakes for most of our athletic patients to want to wear those so no we typically don't in these situations but we use those um forefoot rocker shoes heaps in our forefoot pathology patients perfect and on and staying on footwear i guess or inserts you mentioned orthotics a couple of times and uh, a simple over-the-counter that can go in the boot to support the medial arch um when how often are we using orthotics sort of coming out of the boot and where should we have a degree of caution with prescribing them and not just putting them in willy-nilly yeah, I think uh, any of those patients that we're transitioning out of the boot and, and we don't want to keep them immobilised when they've got medial um, soft tissue damage and likely scarring process because we've just gone through the vagaries of dealing with a stiff ankle and if we immobilise for too long, then we're going to create a stiff ankle. So um, getting them out of the boot should be a little bit of a you know borderline process. We want it, We want them out as early as we think they're safe to do so, but in doing so, there's probably a risk of, well, we've been controlling their um, coronal transverse plane motions with an in-shoe orthotic to a degree inside the, inside the boot. 
we usually then transition that into their shoe. Um, so they will then progress into an athletic shoe, standard 10 mil pitch athletic shoe. However, if they're stiffer in dorsiflexion, we'll often put a 10 mil lift under the orthotic device as well. Caution around use of um, those orthotics is when we start to get patients into directional change activities. So they might be doing their first um, um, weaving and S-type um, um, progressions and then later into their cutting drills. And, and we don't want a laterally unstable patient who happened to have a concurrent medial instability pushed up too high into an inverted position. Remember, these orthotics are rear foot inverting orthoses. So we carefully lift that, that medial side up and support it. Um, a, a lot of the proponents in the podiatric space would say that we, we don't lift anything. We're probably just creating some um, form of tactile response to get some better dynamic stabilization, which, you know, I'm, I'm happy with that theory too. But either way, we're providing some stabilizing um, signal to the medial longitudinal arch, but carefully if there's concurrent lateral instability. And for those patients that need it on the medial side, they need it. Um, we'd then be looking at how do we tape to stabilize medial and lateral sides as well so that we kind of offset the risk of being a bit too elevated in the medial side and, and not increasing the risk of additional lateral trauma. I'm going to swing back a little bit to something we skipped over a, a little bit at the start that might just get a bit of clarification for our listeners, I guess. Um, you talked around... A lateral ankle that, say, doesn't respond after a week or two and is still sort of having some pain with weight bearing, um, that maybe that might sort of just spruik some interest around this medial, um, subtle medial instability. Where are they demonstrating their pain? Is it is it anterior aspect of the medial malleolus or more posterior? Uh, and yeah, where where is they where is their pain? Uh, it'll it'll depend on the nuance of that particular individual's circumstances, but um, typically they're talking about if they're combined lateral and medial, they'll be talking about you know submalleolar pain in that lateral gutter of the ankle and in the medial gutter of the ankle and just below the malleolus as well. So sort of from I suppose if you're looking um, from a um, a lateral view of an ankle from a a six o'clock position underneath the malleolus, if you like, up to a three or a nine o'clock, depending on which side you're looking at. So that that quadrant in that you know quarter of an arc there is kind of where they're going to be demonstrating most of their symptoms. That's in the sort of more acute presentation. In the in the late presentation, one of those things that we'll often see is an unstable medial side will produce lateral compression. So these patients can come in and they'll talk to you about their lateral symptoms. They may not talk to you at all about pain that they're getting on the medial side because they may not have any and they'll compress in the subfibular region against the calcaneum or they'll compress in the sinus tarsi um, so if you see those things happening just remember back to looking for well what what's the structure on the medial side look like so they're, they're just good um, checklists to have as a, a mental checklist yeah and we also um, you know, when we talked about further investigation and, and further looking at our assessment of the medial aspect, um, what can imaging tell us there? I'm assuming an MRI, would that give us clear indication that we are dealing with something here on the medial or is there certain elements we need to look at? D- depending on the timing of the imaging. So these patients that have had a higher level, remember this is a bigger, stronger ligament than the lateral ligament complex, which is, you know, three three thin strips on the lateral side, whereas we've got a, a much chunkier, broader, and that structure speaks to its function, where it's, it's an integral structure for stabilisation through normal weight-bearing forces, whereas the lateral ligament pretty much comes into play when we get into a significant inverted position. So in normal gait, our medial structures and normal stance, our, our medial structures are contributing stabilisation to the medial longitudinal arch of the ankle rear foot. So... In that situation, we would just want to make sure that, that those structures are, um, are patent and they're, they're held um, stable so that those patients don't progress onto those longer-term sequelae we were talking about. Does that answer that question okay, Nick? Oh, I think so. But, yeah, you'd, you'd advocate imaging to give you further information and, um, you know, that would guide a little bit about your next step, would it not? Yeah, sorry, apologies. I, I missed on that one. Yes, um, we certainly would be looking at um, MRI scan 
for those patients. But in the earlier stages, uh, they're, they're going to have a, a substantial amount of bone edema. So the, the scan's going to light up a fair bit. Uh, they'll be able to discern, you know, what's injured on the medial side. And now we're getting, you know, more sophisticated MRI reports on, you know, whether it's um, uh, tibio navicular, tibio spring components. And they'll often be making comments now about spring ligaments involved as well. So when you're getting those types of reports back, um, you know, they'll, they'll, in the subtle presentation, there'll only be partial injuries to those structures most commonly. Um, but they'll come with increased signal in those structures. And if you do see uh, deltoid ligament and spring ligament with increased signal, then you're going to have a patient that's got a fairly high chance of developing instability if we don't manage them through that cam walker, careful transition into um, managed uh, footwear situations and then graduated loading into ultimately cutting drills and back to return to play. So, so they do need to be picked up early. Hopefully we've sort of moved through a, um, a pathway there about talking about the medial rear foot instability from trying to pick it up around both the mechanism being a little bit more aware of it and knowledge to the sequelae of something if we do miss it, as well as some um, you know assessment techniques and a little bit around management. Uh, you did talk to uh, that at one of our a little bit to our foot and ankle conference a year or two back, but you also did touch on uh, talk to the Cinders Moses on uh, at the football injury conference uh, of recent times. I just wanted to touch on that really quickly um, because I guess you talked around some of the external rotation mechanism of injury for these medial ankles. Um, can we can we get some of this medial ankle instability um, concomitant with the Cinders Moses injury? Um, and and then where do we go from there? Uh, yes, we can. And um, if we've got combined syndesmosis and medial um, involvement, then it's pretty likely that patient's going to escalate to surgery because they might both be at a subtle level, but the combined effects are not functionally subtle. So if there's a little bit of gapping at the syndesmosis, and, and it might be worth that while just to dive down the syndesmosis rabbit hole for a minute or two, um, those patients that we're measuring their syndesmosis instability in functional imaging, so a weight-bearing CT scan under load that's been developed in Victoria at one of the um, radiology clinics where they've been uh, uh, pretty progressive in lots of procedural-based stuff. Uh, they developed hydrodilatation for the shoulder a few decades ago. Um, they've also come up with this weight-bearing CT scan um, assessment of the syndesmosis and there's an algorithm whereby they measure the cross-sectional area of the syndesmosis under load and in non-weight-bearing situations as well. And they'll compare the injured and the uninjured sites. So they do four scans, basically, um, injured, weight-bearing, injured, non-weight-bearing, and then same thing for the non-injured side. If we get differences of 12% or more, then those patients have been correlated at arthroscopy with having an unstable syndesmosis. So let's say a patient might be 10%. You think, well, you know, that's not too bad. It probably can be managed conservatively if they've had a weight-bearing CT scan. But you've also picked up in your clinical testing that they've got medial ankle rear foot instability, and that's at a subtle level as well. Those two combination factors, you've got a syndesmosis that's not holding the talus perfectly in its um, sagittal plane motions, and it's going to allow for a little bit more complex rotational movement there as well. And we've got structures coming down through subtalar and possibly talar navicular joints that are going to allow more coronal transverse plane instability. Those combinations are going to present usually as to, as the, to the athlete as this is just not feeling right at sort of higher levels of propulsion. And that might be despite the best conservative management altogether. So, yeah, if you see those two things combined, syndesmosis and medial ankle rear foot instability, higher likelihood they'll progress onto some form of surgical reconstruction. And it might just be they get a syndesmosis tight rope installed. That gets left in. That takes care of the syndesmosis component. And then we can rehab the subtler version um, medial component and, and that patient gets a good result then. Not to try to stay on syndesmosis too long, but you mentioned the tight rope there. That versus um, your traditional screw fixation. Um, what's your opinion on that there? And I know some surgeons still don't do the tight rope because they're worried or concerned around the long-term outcome and whether that really provides that stability. Um, but clearly the tight rope's getting used a lot more at the moment. Um, what do you see? Uh, yeah, we see combinations of all of the above. So... 
Um, the, the broad range is, um, you know, a, a Weber C syndesmosis fibular fracture. That's going to need open reduction internal fixation. Sometimes it'll be plate and screws for the fibula plus a syndesmosis fixation. And that might be with a leave-in device because there's plates that you can put a tight rope through. Um, let's leave the fibular fracture out of the equation and we've just got um, syndesmosis injury now um, as an isolated um, instance. The... The advent of leave-in devices has meant that second part surgery isn't required. There's a, a few international orthoped, um, orthopedic foot and ankle surgeons who will let patients mobilise on their syndesmosis screw until the screw breaks and then leave it in, and they think it doesn't cause much in the way of post-screw breakage um, sequelae, but many patients become irritated by that metal wear and then they're ending up having very complicated surgery to try to remove all the metal wear once it's broken. So the general rule of thumb for patients that have a screw fixation is they have to come back for second part surgery and they'll often have a non-weight-bearing phase of six weeks. Now, if that's an in-season injury, that's getting close to season-ending injury for those individuals. Um, whereas, um, yeah, we've had, uh, I think in in 2016 with uh, Liberatore got back at five weeks and, and Selwood uh, the following year I think was back at, at six weeks or thereabouts. Now maybe their, their play perhaps wasn't at their peak level but you know, they were playing at that time frame after syndesmosis fixation surgery in a time frame that we never thought possible before we had these leaving devices and Arthrex make the tightrope device. Um, there's a couple of others, Biomet make the zip tight and Striker have a cinch fixed device, but they're all variations of a theme. And it, it means that it's flexible fixation of the syndesmosis and so the device won't break. A little bit on the rehab side of things, we, you know, when we talked just to touch on it, because um, we've talked a lot here and I won't hold you much longer, but um, the, we talked around a couple of those sort of troubleshooting spots in the rehab of the medial ankle. So, you know, the FHL, for example, where is one of the biggest challenges in our syndesmosis rehab, do you find? Uh, yeah, the, the biggest challenges for that is the decision-making process for the, the um, managing team in conservative versus surgical for the borderline unstable patient. So the patients that's sort of at 10 or 11 or 14% um, percent separation of the syndesmosis, they might get a good result with conservative management, but you, you're going to have to hold that patient back the whole way through. So applying the brakes to those patients, that's that's a difficult thing to do because I often feel better in straight line activities than they actually are and they'll, they'll want to progress faster. So um, if there's any doubt with that or if it's a, a key player that's, you know, sorely needed back for that season, then um, we'd be normally in those borderline cases advocating particularly, you know, the, the more elite the player becomes for that surgical management because it's now got a, a, a relatively good track record of getting players back at good functional level early. So one of the biggest challenge in that respect is is that uh, decision for the borderline patient are we going to try and do this in a um, in a, uh, um, a conservative fashion and, and then that patient's going to be a bit bit difficult to manage because their expectation is going to probably be better than or higher than their, their functional capacity for a fair while I guess the other one with that too, Nick, is in that you, you mentioned the traditional fixation patient, but that's probably another really frustrating stage is patients being kept um, from excessively dorsiflexing their ankles. So some surgeons have a, a need for patients to be using a cam walker for normal mobilising until they have the screw removal and you know that's often well after six weeks. So you can't rehab your patient properly until you've removed that because you can't get them into dynamic loading tasks for fear of breaking the metalware. So that's another challenging case as well is that, that traditional screw fixation patient. And uh, um, if, if I was ever having this done for myself, I'd be going for um, you know, a leave-in type device anytime. Yeah, right. And I'm sure that the trouble with obviously restoring dorsiflexion, you said dorsiflexion is king. So uh, it'd be, it'd be trou uh, troublesome to get that after six weeks in the boot, no doubt, for yeah, it is. And, and remembering that at the end of the process, if you had a, um, uh, an excellent fixation with a screw that then got removed, you're relying on the biologic processes to stabilize those ligaments because the ligaments aren't repaired unless there's exceptional circumstances. They're just allowed to scar up and the screw allows them to scar in a shortened position. But the longer term for the patient that has a leave-in device, they've got their ligament scarring processes plus 
a secondary or device augmenting their syndesmosis stability. So there's a, an added bonus there. All right, Stu. So we've talked through a lot of different aspects there. Is there anything that we've missed that you think we should we should touch on, or or if not, maybe just your sort of key takeaway messages? Well, I think the the one thing was just that the uh, with the syndesmosis um, management and decision making process, our our tightrope style fixation is our fastest return to play strategy, um, and it it means there's a one off surgical consideration rather than two so complications from second surgeries avoided and, and the rest of that so and you basically end up with a happier patient because they're not having to cool their jets for a fair while while they're waiting on their second surgery and then start the really um, dynamic component of their rehab so yeah that's probably just the one take home from that if, if we're in doubt if you're working with surgeons who are using that type of device then you'll, you'll probably have a a cleaner, easier rehab progression with those patients. Beautiful. And, and nothing else to add around the medial ankle and rear foot instability patients that we haven't talked to? Don't miss them. <laughs> yeah, just uh, be on the lookout for it. Uh, plenty of patients will come in and they'll have an ultrasound scan that's been ordered by the GP and the, uh, the practitioner is they're doing their due diligence, looking at the lateral structures as they've been instructed to and they might skip the medial structures. Um, we shouldn't be doing and making the same mistake ourselves and assessing every patient as though are they stable on the lateral side, are they stable on the medial side, and I'm going to manage them appropriately from what I find, not just from the perhaps deficient information that they're sent along with. Perfect. Now, um, we'll, we'll, we'll wrap up there. And uh, for those that don't know, I think the football conference is still available to, to view some virtual content there online to hear Stu's Prezzo on, on syndesmosis. Um, and also Stu's new masterclass on Liz Frank rehabilitation and management is will be up on our new platform by the time this podcast goes live. So um, certainly get across and have a look at that. It's full of practical insights and, and tips and, um, and and plenty more to add on, on Liz Frank, wasn't there, Stu? Uh, yeah, that was a bit of fun, Nick. We, uh, we had uh, an interesting day getting you down the beach for some late-stage rehab drills and some mobility challenge movements for the midfoot. Uh, yeah, but just getting a chance to run through that pathology assessment, uh, the management principles, um, and also just reiterating that these are these are complex injuries. And I remember getting, you know, the first couple when I started working in surgical foot and ankle practices and being a little bit all at sea. Um, it's a little bit like the first, you know, as a, as a young grab when you get your first ACL to, to rehab. You understand it's a big impact on the player. It's a season-ending injury. needs to be gotten right. Um, we do, unfortunately, even with the best management, still see poor long at long-term outcomes with our list franks and um 20 percent of um of professional players uh retire and and we see the same in military recruits as well 20 percent um decommissioned after having a military list frank injury so even with best management some of them don't come on so well the long-term sequelae for those as well is that radiological evidence of um of osteoarthritis in those patients is is high. It's about 74%. And of those 50% of all patients post list frank stabilization, they have symptoms associated with midfoot osteoarthritis. So um, being able to manage those patients through and provide strategies, and some of them can do well. We were talking before about um, the role for rocker shoes. Some of them can, can cope a bit better if they're in. You know, a shoe that's got a terminal rocker that assists them getting through the ball of the foot a bit more comfortably because that's where the midfoot osteoarthritic patient doesn't do too well. Stu, you're always full of information. I could um, keep talking to every different foot and ankle pathology and get some fantastic new insights from you. Um, so I've uh, always enjoyed like our chats and um, I've worked with you on some, some with some different athletes as a, as a second opinion um, from you and some input and I've uh, been lucky to sort of sit on your masterclass and also continue to have um, chats and, and obviously you've spoken at our conferences numerous times. So um, there's a reason for that and that's because you're obviously super knowledgeable in this space and, and for physios, there's so much good information to get from you. So um, super appreciate your time. Um, obviously all the best with the Foot and Ankle Rehabilitation Australia, which has now just shifted or, or moved a new clinic into Tassie as well as dominating around Victoria. So um Thanks, mate, and all the best. Uh, thanks very much, Nick. It's always much appreciated, and it's as much fun um, having a conversation about this stuff as uh, as the teaching of it as well. So um, I really enjoy that process. Thanks for the uh, the platform and the opportunity.